It was extremely insightful chatting with Chris Radel today, portfolio manager covering the global automotive sector at Gordian Capital. Chris breaks down everything that investors would need to know about the current dynamics and future outlook of the auto industry on both the micro and macro level. This was truly a great and insightful chat, and I hope you all enjoy. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today, Chris. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Jim. So uh, I wanted to cover uh, a few things today, but I think let's start with the overall health of the auto sector. And so just for a bit of context here for our listeners, we have auto debt climbing to record levels at about $1.4 trillion. Um, average auto loan balances have now surpassed the $20,000 mark. And, uh, you know, while overall delinquencies have remained in line with seasonal trends, there have been a a huge rise in in the number of borrowers that are more than 60 days behind on their payments. And so, yeah, I'm wondering with all these dynamics in play, Chris, you know, with consumer health deteriorating, subprime auto loan origination record levels, what are your kind of thoughts on, on the current dynamics within the auto loan market? It kind of seems like things are bound to get worse from here. What's your view on that? Well, um, so I think the best barometer for for what's going on with um, auto loans in the states is actually not the uh, used car dealerships or or the new you know the new car dealerships, the usual sort of you know CarMaxes, um, the Auto Nations, and and you know the Carvanas and all those types. Uh, it's actually what the car makers who are most exposed to the United States are doing. Even though the you know Ford and GM might be a good barometer, and they all increased their um, their finance division reserves as well, the Japanese who have much better balance sheets than uh, Ford and GM have all across the board um, increased their reserves in their finance divisions, um, and they all said that it's because as of the uh, as of the first quarter this year that um, they've seen in- increased delinquencies. So. These guys, uh, I mean, you know, Ford and GM are net cash too. But I mean, if you're looking at like Toyota, Honda, uh, and Nissan, th- these guys are massively net cash compared to um, Ford and GM. So for yeah. for the Japanese to follow suit and actually, you know, say, hey, there's something, there, th- this is not good. Um, we need to increase our reserves. Um, it's pretty serious. So all of them, just like Ford and GM last year, like made most of their money more than their auto division from their finance divisions. And um, the fact that they're all um, upping their reserves, um, you know, to prepare for more delinquencies is a clear signal um, that uh, things are are not good in the uh, loan market. Um, they, they give the Japanese give the best disclosure on on like exactly what their assumptions are with their forward guidance. And um, one thing that came up with with uh, all the Japanese car makers I spoke to was that um, I said, "What's this negative factor? You have like others, you know, inc- uh, being a headwind of you know this many you know billions of dollars or hundreds of millions." And so they broke down everything and they'll tell you, you know, that uh, all of them had part of, uh, you know, their finance divisions increasing reserves. So, I mean, you know, why is the finance division expected to see uh, this much of an earnings decline when used car prices are still at, you know, pretty much near record level highs? Um, Residual values are strong and, you know, whatnot. And they all came back resoundingly and saying that, you know, we're, we're seeing increased defaults. Gotcha. And so with that backdrop, 
of, uh, you know, automakers preparing for, uh, for a more downwards period. I guess the other major question mark is surrounding the magnitude of this impending crash. So, I mean, all over Twitter and, and I guess all the news, we've seen a lot of bearishness spreading around. But um, Santander, which is the largest U.S. subprime auto lender, is seeing uh, loss curves much better than historical loan pools, actually. And so do you think uh, do you think the cycle is more of a reversion to the mean type event back to 20 percent average losses? Or could the magnitude here be much greater with with a weakening consumer and all of these macro dynamics that are at play as well? Right. So just just, you know, um, full disclosure, I'm not an expert in the uh, auto loan um, market, but um, I can I can give you my impression, which is uh, that in a nutshell, I think we're going back to the pre pre pandemic levels. So post pandemic, you know, af um, after the pandemic started, um, you had the chip shortage, um, you had people staying at home, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that led to um, that led to to new car prices and used car prices, especially uh, rising to you know record highs that we've never seen before. Um, right. So I think the uh, the the quick answer to your question is, given that you know car prices, new and used car prices, need to revert to the mean, I think we're also going to see delinquencies um, that have to revert to the mean. Now, uh, the question is is um, how much of that mean reversion um, is going to hit the uh, the uh, automotive industry, um, especially the likes of Carvana? Um, mm. And I think that uh, given that um, Carvana made most of its money on the way up, when used car prices were you know ramping up to new record highs, you know for for pretty much two years in a row, um, I think these guys uh, will probably be. I think washed out. I mean, to be quite honest, and and Santander could as well um, take a huge hit. The uh, the sort of you know um, subprime auto loan market or the auto loan market in general has been going to new record highs. I, I believe since like um, twenty fifteen. Um, so it's it's always been at new record highs. It's just never been this bad. With so much sort of slowdown, you know, recessionary fears um, ahead, and this is what sort of makes things quite risky at the moment. Gotcha. And so I think that gives us a good transition into uh, into a little update on supply chain dynamics. And so uh, just for a bit of context here. Um, you know, virtually all publicly traded automakers and suppliers are kind of still citing chip shortages um, in, in the first quarter, at least. But uh, things seem to be improving a little bit um, in, this, in Q2 with companies like Volvo suggesting that uh, the chip shortage may be easing and they, they may be able to get back to uh, full capacity. And so I'm wondering, how does the uh, overall chip shortage kind of look from your end here at the moment? Um, I'd be surprised if Volvo could get back to full capacity. <laughs> Or full production, but um, the the chip situation is actually taking a huge step up in terms of improvement as of July. So um, okay. I spent June talking to most of the major car makers, listened to all the earnings calls, and one thing that's um, one one thing that um, especially the Japanese. Once again, I I, I use the Japanese as benchmarks because. Um, They've got better disclosure. Um, they've they've got as much uh, exposure in North America as as Ford and GM do. Well, not as much, but they 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 are quite dependent on the North American car market. So um, they all said that um, as of July, 
the uh, chip supply situation has completely improved. And there are various factors. Well, two main factors for this is that um, a the um, the global handset market. So the hand uh, you know the handset makers are seeing a right. massive decline in volumes, and um, as are the uh, the PC and game makers as well. So um, this is causing a huge sort of uh, wave of order cancellations uh, for the chip right. makers from from the handset makers, PC and game makers. So this means that they've got larger capacity now to supply the auto industry, which is still, you know, uh, at such a shortage of supply with chips that, um, you know, U.S. vehicle inventory is 80 percent below pre-pandemic levels. Mm -hmm. So this means that um, they, they can supply more chips to automakers. But the problem is that um, what the chip makers, uh, the kind of chips that the chip makers have the most capacity for is exactly the kind of chips that the handset makers, the PC makers, and the game makers use. Uh, the car makers use an older form of, of um, microchips, which um, most chip makers have pretty much stopped making, but sort of can supply in a halfway manner. So even though there's more carve out now for the automakers, which is why they're all seeing, you know, from Q3 start, they're seeing a massive increase in supply. Um, the, the point is it's not going to get back to sort of full levels of production because the car makers are still using such outdated forms of, um, uh, microchips. The interesting, the interesting thing is that, um, uh, I'll give you a good example. So Honda, um, said that just like every other car maker said that, you know, from, from July, we're seeing a huge step up in supply. And I said, okay, yeah, that sounds like everybody else. And they said, uh, and actually Q4 is seeing a larger step up. We were originally looking at a mild step up from Q3 to Q4 in supply, but it's now looking like another big step up, just like from Q2 to Q3, which is interesting because it means that um, you're going to see, you know, a flood of um, new vehicle inventory. Right. And so I guess the other side of the, uh, the supply chain based location is materials. And so we've seen bursts in, in metal prices like aluminum, palladium, iron ore. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you've seen these kind of pressures start to ease or, or, or are you seeing materials having uh, a continued impact on the re on rest of your projections? Um, as, as you know, probably recently Ford just increased the price of the lightning by another 8,000 citing, uh, citing these, these types of headwinds. So. Wondering where where's the overall market looking on materials? Okay, so um, so lithium is. Um, I used to think, oh, this is a huge factor. You look at lithium prices; they've gone up, you know, ninety five percent year to date. Blah blah blah. Right. Um, the average EV, so not the Ford Lightning. The Ford Lightning definitely uses more lithium than than like say the you know um, Tesla Model Three or the Model Y. But um, Tesla says that they, on average, use. Um, five kilograms of lithium per car. And um, that's actually not that much. And it, it they and and um, Musk said that overall the uh the, the lithium component of the cell is only two to three percent of the cost. So if you if you use spot prices and stuff like that, the price of lithium has basically gone from about $55 a year ago to around $355 now. That's a massive increase, but yeah. um, it's not a, it's not like a, a huge it's not as much as like what steel prices are doing to the car makers. Right. So in Q1, Q2, steel prices still hurt. 
But um, this last week, the uh, the Japanese car makers all had their um, their earnings calls, and um, pretty much all of them said that the you know the headwinds from steel prices are going down. I'm sorry, the headwind from steel prices are still there, but um, the other stuff like the rare the the rare earth materials like you know palladium and rhodium, those prices are now starting to come down. Okay, but steel steel is pretty much I mean you know, 60% of a car maker's costs. So that is a, that's a huge component. And the fact that that hasn't gone down is, is, um, is sort of still sort of a, an earnings headwind for the car makers. Yeah, definitely still going to see, see some hurt from that. And so uh, moving on, we can uh, start to cover the, the OEMs. And, and so most of the major OEMs have, have reported. I'm wondering kind of how you form your overall thesis here in terms of uh, in terms of the the car makers that you look to invest in. So uh, just some context here. Bamel Bank of America has a uh, annual auto sector report named Car Wars. And so their their thesis is mainly that an OEM's product replacement rate um, drives their showroom age, which then in turn drives market share and profits and stock prices. And so um, the, the thesis generally makes sense, but then you have some outliers like GM, where they have, uh, you know, high, high volume investment rates but are still losing market share. And so I'm wondering if, do you kind of agree with this, this take on, on the thesis or are there other factors in terms of what you, you would put in weight to when analyzing these automaker stocks? I think the, I, th- I like the car wars report. I, I, I read it all the time. I mean, every year. Um, and it, it is it is the most important question, and it's it's such an important question that uh, the Tesla bulls should really think about what model momentum is. Um, and um, what it means is like how many how many new cars are going to be replacing um, old cars, and um, this is important because um, most car makers, um, not Tesla, most car makers um, do full model changes um, every four to six years. Okay. And you sort of have to do this because, um, I mean, if you look at the, you know, at a picture of the first Toyota, you know, Corolla or the the first um, Honda Civic, and you look at the current version, I mean, they're they're completely different. And um, of course, the old one looks old, and you know, the new one looks like the, you know, like the current version. Um, if you if you have, you know, so the car the car industry is one of the most overcapacitated industries um, out there. So many competitors, it's, and it's so capital intensive that if right. you don't refresh your, not, it's not even a refresh; it's a full makeover. If you don't do a full makeover every four to six years, given all the competition, um, your your models will get old and stale. So to mm-hmm. re- renew demand, they have to do these full model changes. So the the Car Wars report is good. What the Car Wars report doesn't factor in is um, could those new models, uh, which are expected to sell, you know, better than the old versions, could they be duds? Could they be lemons? Yeah, right. To give you a good, give you a good, good example, um, everybody had very high hopes for um, Volkswagen's, um, you know, full entry into the electric vehicle market and um, yeah. actually been a, a horrific failure. Um, the ID4 is um, a complete failure in China. Which is um, Volkswagen's biggest, you know, EV market. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's put it this way: it's 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 uh, in volume terms, Germ- uh, Europe might be as big, but in profit terms, it's it's their biggest um, profit center. Uh, it, the ID4 is a complete failure in China. 
And while it's selling in the States now, um, I heard that the uh, ID4's um, inventory levels are above 100 days right now in the U.S. Now, that wow. that's pretty bad because ideally you want to have around 60 days supply. Well, the ID for 100 days. So so the thing is that um, the Car Wars report is good, but it's like it doesn't factor into who's going to actually hit a home run with these new models and who's actually going to strike out. So um, while Ford and Toyota seem to show in that report that they have the biggest uh, new model momentum going forward, um, it doesn't really predict how much um, each new model that they launch is actually going to be successful. And I would, right. I, would play, I would definitely place my bets on, on uh, Toyota rather than Ford. And mm -hmm. the reason why is that um, they've got a very sort of um, stable, solid customer base. And I think the, I haven't really looked into the details, but I believe that most of the new model momentum at Ford are the, uh, the, the, the F-150 Lightning. And, the F-150 Lightning has a huge order backlog and it's, you know, it's, um, uh, they can't produce enough of them right now. But the problem is that um, they'll only be cannibalizing existing F-150 sales, right. which, is most their, which is most of their sales. Right. And this seems ever so, so important now because uh, if I recall correctly, over the next few years, we're having near a record number of models, like 50, 60, um, if you can correct me there. But it's just, it just seems really tough to kind of uh, to, to distill the, uh, the attraction of, of the car in, in, in the marketplace compared to the replacement rates. Right. Well, I mean, um, it's it's always been that way. But um, yes, you're right. As the as uh, uh, Bank of America's, you know, Car Wars report pointed out, we are seeing a record number of new model launches. I think it's it's not 50. It's it's like over over 150. And that that's in the next two or three years. But the point right. is that um, that uh, it, it is um, it, it's 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 um, it's a record number simply because a lot of these new model launches were holdovers from uh, 2020 when the pandemic and the chip shortage started. So right. um, a lot of these are sort of delayed new model launches and they're all sort of like now seeping in because um, chip supply is coming back. Yeah, makes sense. And so with all of these challengers emerging in the space, you know, we even Polestar, Lucid, Rivian, Mullen, hundreds of the EV uh, Chinese makers, what, what kind of factors do you think are going to ultimately determine who wins major market share within within the EV market? Well, it's tough to tell because we haven't seen uh, most of these new EVs um, being launched. And uh, the the ones that have already launched, like uh, from startups like Lucid, Rivian, they're having production problems. And um, right. and they're, they're having um, not only chip shortages, but... Um, ramp up problems plus um you know they're, they're going through their teething phase right now so so they're they're probably not a good indicator but um you know this is just a gut feel from a you know sort of auto you know geek um perspective um i think i think um based on the buzz i'm hearing uh, i think rivian has a very solid runway to to see growth unfortunately they're not going to be profitable for a very long time I think uh, the street consensus doesn't see them making profits until 2026. Right. So it's not a stock I would recommend to buy. But um, uh, And then you've got um, like the Ford Mach-E. Um, you've got um, 
Polestar. You've got uh, in China the, the you know Neo, um, Xpeng, and um, Li. These guys right. are all knocking it out of the park. Um, so, but the the thing is, um, you have to sort of you know look at who's going to actually expand globally. Rivian sells pickup trucks. Um, they have an SUV uh, and some commercial vehicles, but um, I think that's basically a North American play. Um, Lucid um, only has one model right now. They're coming up with a second one um, uh, by 2024. But um, the point is, um, I think they, that's mainly going to be a U.S. and uh, Europe play. They can export to Europe, no problems. They can't. They, right. they can export to, to China, but they'll face like forty percent tariffs because of the uh, the the Trump, you know, trade uh, tariffs that came up, right. you know, between China and, and the U.S. So I think mm-hmm. the, way, the what I really like to see is 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 a really sort of diversified global footprint. And when it comes to that, um, I mean, you don't want to be too dependent on one country. Is what I'm trying to say. So um, let's say if there's some kind of geopolitical event in Europe, which there is, and things, um, you know, go badly there, um, you know, somebody like Toyota is still got enough sales in, in Asia and in, in especially in North America to, to cover for that. Right. Um, that's why when you value auto companies, um, you try to, I, I always put an emphasis on, on global diversity. How, how, you know, what is their global footprint? And so the mm-hmm. Rivian, Rivian probably doesn't have that. Lucid doesn't have that. The ones who really have it are the existing legacy car makers who are just starting to roll out their new EV models. So who wins in the EV war is still sort of a question mark at this point. Right. And so uh, with that kind of, I guess, all these capital constraints and, and the possible continued drag in unprofitability, I'm wondering if you see there being kind of an, an exit strategy here for a lot of these, these companies that may face a wave of consolidation throughout the entire industry? I think um, history has proven that consolidation, meaning you know, two, car, two, two or three car makers tie up as one, come mm-hmm. together as one, right? Mergers in the auto industry have historically been a failure. Uh, you've got Daimler Chrysler, you've got you know, right. Daimler Mitsubishi, um, you know, you've got Nissan and Renault, which is turning out, they haven't merged, but, um, uh, that's an alliance that's about to fall apart. Um, the only one that's actually really made it was, um, Fiat Chrysler, uh, which is now, you know, PSA, but, um, that is really one rare example of success in terms of mergers in the auto industry. I think in the auto industry, what you need is to have the bad ones exit the market and have the, the stronger ones um, stay there. Right, yeah, that makes sense. And so you mentioned, uh, you know, this, this, this emphasis on, on global, global diversity and how that is only kind of possessed by the legacies right now. I'm, I'm still wondering if you think this is kind of the right time to own these traditional OEM stocks, because it seems like um, for context, we're gonna see, you know, a drag on profitability as the EV segment scales and that's subsidized by the ICE profits. But then if we, you know, see consumer vehicle demand slow and, and we do head into that recession, um, could could lower ice profits plus that loss making EV segment, uh, you know, really mark uh, a pretty significant period of, of pressure for these traditional manufacturers? So, first of all, um, I think that we are facing a recession 
And um, I think that's I think that's more of a done deal in Europe than it is in America. But um, right. I think you know um, if it's sort of fifty fifty in America, but you know definitely in, in Europe. Um, Europe going into recession, China being in a recession is most likely going to lead America into a recession as well. So in in uh, in front of a you know p- potential recession, I would never buy an auto stock. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's my that that's sort of my first thought on that. That being said, um, I think that the most interesting plays are possibly in Japan. I think the. Uh, the U.S. auto stocks um, have sort of they got beaten up, and then they came out and reported Q2 numbers, and they sort of rebounded. Well, the U.S. market has basically re- rebounded off of June lows. Um, mm-hmm. The ones that have sort of n- really not gone anywhere are the uh, Japanese big three. So you know, there's Toyota, which is top in class. There's Honda, which is sort of you know they were in the doghouse, but they're about to like they're they're halfway out the doghouse now. Nissan's still in the doghouse. But the point is, um, these guys have cut their costs so much during the past two years um, amid the chip crisis that all they need to see is, you know, a 10, 15% quarter on quarter rise in volumes. And they're, they're going to see much more profitability than, than uh, Ford or GM will. So I think that in the short term, I think your safest bet is, is Toyota. You know, uh, if you're if you're into value Honda, you know you basically, uh, I think something like seventy percent of Honda's market cap is its motorcycle division. So if its auto wow. division starts making uh, a huge comeback, um, so right now Honda, the problem with them is you know they make like uh, six seven percent operating margins, but that's pretty much like all their finance division and their and their motorcycle division. The car division okay. is like only about you know um, as, as a unit it's in itself, um, it's it's the least contributor to to overall consolidated profits, and and that's because the auto division, even though it's 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 so huge on a revenue basis, they're only making three percent operating margins. So, right. um, but all these guys are going to see a huge comeback, and I think the Japanese have been much more crafty than than uh, the U.S. traditional big three. Uh, they've um, started repurposing chips from say water heaters and uh uh laundry machines um i'm not sure but um but so they're not only repurposing chips at at full hilt right now but uh they're now seeing larger chip supply as i just explained um Mm -hmm. and um so given that i think the the biggest sort of um operating leverage you can see from from now to you know Q3, Q4. So I'm in terms of short-term trades, I'd say Toyota and Honda are probably um, the best picks. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I don't think we could have you on without discussing the uh, $750 billion gorilla in the room, uh, which is uh, Tesla. And so, uh, yeah, I know you have a a very comprehensive thesis and I'll let you kind of give us a high level overview of that. But um, I'm wondering what you kind of think um, in terms of Tesla's kind of health and forecast going into H2 as well as into 23 and 24. Right. Well, first of all, uh, just to sort of clarify things, it's it's nine hundred and eight billion dollars, not seven hundred and fifty. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> <laughs> but um uh, the, yeah, so Tesla is 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 uh, so l- l- let's let's start with the good things, okay? 
um, they they have grown their auto sales uh, from 2012 nonstop till now. I mean, literally nonstop on an annual basis. So uh, this is something that that has never been done in the auto industry since Ford, you know, started uh, mass producing the Model T. Um, however, as we saw with you know Ford back then, um, once GM you know comes into the game. There is no first mover advantage in, in, in an auto industry, in the auto industry today. So, right, so right. Tesla hit it out of the park because they came in pretty much right after the great financial crisis and started making the Model S in 2012. Uh, then they introduced the Model 3. And um, that, yeah, I mean, you had, you know, um, you had uh, quantitative easing going on, you know, uh, you had, you know, I mean, interest rates, you know, you know, at zero to one percent, and then um, now we're at, you know, not only, you know, we're at ultra QE right now with uh, what the Fed's doing um, or has done ever since the pandemic. So it's no surprise that um, that um, it's become a bubble, and I think Tesla is uh, the biggest bubble I think anybody alive right now has seen, um, yeah. and um, and I think that it will be. Um, it it will crash very hard, and it will have some collateral damage. Um, I imagine people being arrested. I imagine, you know, um, third parties like Morgan Stanley having problems um, because they're yeah. they're you know so leveraged to Elon Musk and Tesla. Um, and I think uh, the the basic um, the basic sort of crash point comes when they have a bad quarter. Now, right. I think in this environment, and given the way they they can sort of you know, sell every car they produce, whether it's actually sold or not, or whether it's actually in demand or not. Uh, they've sort of mastered the art of um, channel stuffing. They did it with the Model S and the Model X as they were aging. Both of these models are now 50% below their peak levels in 2017. Uh, okay. the, big, okay. the big bogey in the room is the Model 3, which is now um, a five-year-old, you know, if we go into 2023, it's a six-year-old model. That's very old in the car industry. I mean, that's in need of a model change, full model change. And of course, Tesla doesn't do full model changes. Um, and I think that's because Elon Musk does not understand the auto industry. Um, he, he has good engineers. He's got good designers, but um, he himself does not. Under, he thinks that, you know, uh, it's, it's because it's a Tesla, it will sell, you know, forever. Um, hence, no, 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 no new model pipeline. They have the Cybertruck, but that's actually from most suppliers I speak to, that won't be in mass production until 2025. So they basically wow. are facing 2023 and 2024 without any new models. And the Model 3 is, is like I said, in 2023 will be a six-year-old, seven-year-old model. Um, that is going to come under immense pressure, especially if, you know, from the start of 2023, as I just mentioned, because of higher chip supply, the new car inventories get replenished. What this will cause is an immediate drop in new car prices. And when that happens, um, Tesla, who has hiked prices pretty much more than any of the legacy automakers, I think most legacy automakers have hiked prices by around 15%. Um, Tesla has hiked their prices, I believe, by around 27% since the start of the pandemic. Okay. Um, now, what, why this is significant is that um, Tesla has a direct sales model, which means that uh, because they don't have dealerships, uh, if they hike the price, 100% of that price hike goes into their own pockets. Whereas 
if um, GM hikes their prices to their dealers, the dealers can ramp it up even more, which is exactly what they did. There are examples of, uh, for instance, the Toyota RAV4 being sold at 13,000 above uh, MSRP um, last year. Wow. Um, the Ford Mach-E was being sold at $5,000 above, above MSRP because it was in such high demand as well. So what I'm trying to say here is that um, a lot of the price hikes that you're seeing in new car prices, which led to used car prices being um, being up so much, is due to the U.S. dealerships price gouging the customers. Okay. Um, so what happens is when new car inventory is replenished, pr car prices will drop. And when they drop, um, it's going to kill Tesla, whereas the legacy car makers will have their dealerships take at least half, if not 75% of that price drop burden. So the, the, the dealers will take most of the um, burdens and um, the car makers will, will see, you know, they'll see a, you know, a two to $3,000 decrease per unit because of that. But um, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be the end of the world. In fact, the way one automaker explained to me, this is very important is that, um, they said, yeah, chip supply is coming back and um, it's not going to go back to, you know, 100% normal, but it's coming back and we're seeing increased production as of July. So I said, well, you know, if it's all coming back, that means um, inevitably prices must come down. And they said, yeah, that's fine. And I said, why is that fine? And they explained to me that um, most of their profit increase from, from uh, car sales is 75% um, comes from volume increase. Only 25% comes from pricing. Okay. So um, the point is that, um, A, this is because, because they have a dealership network, which Tesla doesn't, um, but right. also B, that um, they've got operations trimmed down enough where uh, they've got um, you know, most of their leverage placed on, on volume increases or decreases. So if volumes go up, they make more money on volumes going up than they do on any price declines. So to mm. give you an example, like it, with Honda, even if they saw, um, you know, in a 10% price decline, but volumes went up, you know, say 15% versus their forecast of, you know, 5%, um, they would see like, I think two, three times higher profits than they're, at, they're forecasting for this year. Wow. Um, so this is, this is uh, something that's really important. Um, and few people focus on this. They just think, oh, you know, Tesla's building, they just built, you know, two new factories. That's actually going to really hurt them because I've seen very few examples, except for Toyota with the RAV4, because that was really in high demand. Um, mm -hmm. Very few car makers to build two new factories for existing models, which are aging. Right. Uh, with, with no new models, you know, um, you know, to speak of. So I think this is where, where it's going to come, come to a halt. And um, when it happens, it's going to happen very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. I think it, we might be looking, I think this is the way it'll pan out. We'll be looking at Q1 delivery estimates and they'll come out and, you know, you know announce deliveries in line with estimates. And um, then they'll come out with their Q1 earnings and the profits will be absolutely horrifically bad. And that's because right. car, car prices will most likely have, dropped so whether that happens in q1 or q2 i don't know but i think it's it's definitely on the table in 2023 
Right. Very insightful. And so how, how important would you also say, you know, you mentioned before how the Japanese have much better disclosures and we, we know that uh, Tesla isn't the best with disclosing on, on raw material and headwinds in general. And so I'm wondering kind of how, how much of a factor you think um, the, the increases in steel and lithium are, are, are hitting Tesla more so than they're leading on to make us believe. Well, so um, it seems uh, they, they let out in terms of lithium, like I just said, it, you know, uh, if you just go by the spot prices, it's gone from like, you know, $60 last year to about $455 this year. So it's not mm -hmm. a massive increase in cost per car. But mind you, uh, the Japanese are, you know, anything over a $100 price in increase per component is a big deal to these guys and they'll sit there and, you know, put up the red flag. Let's go deal with this. Let's go, you know, let's go beat the supplier up. You know, um, the thing is, um, so, so to go from 50 to four, 450, it's, it's, it's not, it's not big, but it is, it is sort of in this big scheme of things. It is big for a car maker multiplied by, you know, the units, you know, produced per year. It, it, it does come, come to a pretty big number. So um, lithium is not, that big of a problem, but I think steel prices are um, a problem. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not a commodities expert, but I would imagine if the legacy car makers have inventories that are 80% below pre-pandemic levels, and they're starting now because the chip supply is widening to increase and replenish those inventories, I, I find it hard for, you know, for steel prices to really come down that much. I mean, unless we see a real cratering in like, you know, China construction or something, uh, which is a, a distinct possibility. But uh, the point is, um, I think, you know, the raw material headwinds are there. Um, the uh, pricing headwinds are are undeniably there. I mean, car right. prices will come down. If you're thinking about buying a used car or new car right now, I would just hold out for another three to six months. Yeah. Definitely makes sense. And so I think the other, you know, major, major tail risk for Tesla or one, one of them is uh, FSD and the uh, current ongoing NH NHTSA investigations. Um, you know, FSD now has, I think, the lowest take rates on record around 13 um, percent. Along with these investigations, I'm wondering um, if you see real material risk that FSD could be removed from the market, as well as how much is currently priced into the valuation. Well, so I think um, the the thing to to um, to really realize first is that most um, institutional investors don't take um, Tesla's autopilot or FSD seriously. It used to, I mean, it, it, look, it was a big sort of icing on the cake, um, and then some, you know, uh, for for some less um, intelligent investors, it sort of, you know, uh, led to them saying, well, that's why it's worth, you know, um, you know five times the uh, normal valuation of, of the uh, average car maker. Um, I mean, Tesla's trading at, you know, 50 times, Volkswagen's trading at four times. Um, the difference is FSD. This is not currently, but that's what the argument, I think, was maybe two or three years ago. Um, I don't think the, the current uh, valuation in Tesla um, really involves that much FSD. I, I, I hope I'm wrong because <laughs> I, I think that um, the regulators are coming down on on. Um, on uh, Tesla's autopilot, but um, I think that um, if if the uh, regulators do come down on them, and I think the chances are higher than they were before, when when uh, during the Trump administration there was no real acting, uh, there was no real head of um, 
the uh, NHTSA, uh, there was only an acting head, which is sort of what Trump did with a lot of uh, regulatory agencies. But um, right. is, um, uh, as of, I think, you know, a couple months ago, we actually now have a real uh, head of NHTSA, which is which is um, which is inspiring. They've also hired Missy Cummings, who is an, you know, autonomous, um, you know, AI, an autonomous vehicle expert from, from Carnegie Mellon. And um, she's okay. um, she's, you know, the fact that they hired her is actually a very telling thing. She was one of the biggest um, sort of opponents of the way Tesla is trading their um, autonomous driving, you know, package, you know, full self-driving, you know, beta testing it on the customers. Nobody does this. And, um, and not only that, but you've actually had, you know, I think over a dozen complaints from, from FSD beta testers um, uh, saying that, you know, their cars crashed on them and, um, yeah. And so, so this is a big problem. And I think that the, the m- momentum is growing. And I think sometime probably by the end of this year or early next year, you will see um, possibly a recall of autopilot. And in, in what fashion, I don't know. Um, does it ex- affect the stock price? I would guess not that much. It might drop for a day or two. But like I just said, and, and as, you, as, you, as, you, um, as you mentioned, the, the take rate on on uh, on autopilot right now is only you know FSD is only about thirteen percent. It's actually possibly lower. That was from Q one. I think it's closer to ten percent now. Okay. Um, will it kill them monetarily? Well, it is. Gosh, you know, it is like I think five hundred million dollars a year. Um, no, it can't okay. be five hundred million dollars a year. But um, it peaked out. Um, I think in in twenty twenty one. And the whole point is that um, um, I, I don't think it'll be bad news. It'll be, you know, bad headlines, but I don't think it's going to be, um, I don't think it'll be the end of the world. It's not what's going to get Tesla deflated as a bubble. Right. Makes sense. And so awesome. And so I think it's, uh, you know, fitting now that uh, BYD is also taking Tesla's crown. And so I think gives us a chance to move on to the Chinese EV market. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what, what are your kind of thoughts on the Chinese EV market potentially being a pocket of, of higher relative growth in the short term? Um, just for some context, um, we've seen Ford and GM cut, cut their workforce um, while the Chinese EV makers are still actively hiring and expanding, uh, while, you know, China is also easing macro conditions while we, we continue to tighten at a rapid pace. And, uh, you know, Chinese demand for EVs is still significant. Um, you know, most of them have doubled year-to-date deliveries. Um, and so I'm wondering, in your view, would you say that the Chinese EV market would serve as a higher pocket of growth in the shorter term? Um, sure. I mean, on a volume basis, most likely, yes. I mean, let's put it this way. If you live in Beijing and try to buy a gasoline engine vehicle, um, you, you'll have to wait two or three years to get your um, license plate um, and okay. car registered. So, so they're basically putting a gun to the consumer's head to buy EVs. Uh, how yeah. long this can last is unknown. I mean, let's say, you know, uh, China is right now in the same stage as Japan was in 1989, which is, you know, the bubble bursting uh, due to overleveraged real estate investments and whatnot, that, which, which is my, my thesis. Things can change very rapidly. Um, they're also paying, you know, consumers a lot of money to with rebates to to buy EVs. Um, how long can that last? They get uh, 
10% off on, you know, on the sales price. Um, how long can that last? So I, I'm not sure. Uh, I personally, um, even though there, there's some, you know, really, you know, solid growth among the, the big three Chinese EV startups, which are Neo, Xpeng, and, um, and Li, um, I think that um, they're so highly valued that it, it makes it hard to buy. If anything, I would be short those stocks. And, and that's why I, I don't look at them as attractive investments. Now, their products are extremely attractive. And um, so much so that I think, I mean, even Elon Musk admits that their greatest competition rests only in China, mm -hmm. uh, not in Europe, not in, in North America. And I totally agree with him. It's true. There has yet to be anybody, you know, any car maker that comes up with something that can really trounce Tesla in, in either the US or the European market. In China, not so. You've got You've got not only the, um, the the big three startups, which I just mentioned, but you've got BYD. You've now got actually Geely, which is a legacy Chinese automaker. It's the biggest one that's not state-owned. And they actually have a new model out called the Zeker. That's Z-E-E-K-R. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a really you know, hot looking model. I sent pictures of it to, to a lot of the uh, Tesla fanboys that I, that I'm in touch with. <laughs> and, um, they all, they're dying to get rid of their model threes because, you know, uh, they can't get the recall fixed. Um, their model threes right. have essentially been recalled, but they can't get a, an appointment at the service center to get it, you know, to get the recall problem fixed. So, um, and there is nothing, you know, to be honest, there is nothing as attractive as, as what Tesla has out there. They have really cool cars. Um, yeah. And what these Tesla buyers want, and which is what the Chinese are providing in China, um, they want sort of like a smartphone on four wheels. And this is what nobody's done so far, except for the Chinese car makers. So in terms of product, they've got the Chinese, you know, car makers have possibly some of the best products out there, especially Neo, Xpeng, and, and um, Li. Um, it's just that these, these, um, Chinese EV stocks are just, just way overpriced. They also won't see profits till, till about 2024, 2025, which is, which is alarming in terms of valuations. Um, but they are, you know, solidly growing their, their volumes and they're unlike Tesla, they're rolling out new models like crazy. And this is why I think, um, eventually what could be part of Tesla's demise is, not only lower prices, you know, globally, but um, market share loss to these um, uh, Chinese EV startups who make products that are as attractive, if not more attractive. Think about this. The biggest, you know, aside from quality build and all that, the, the most noticeable off the bat difference between um, most cars and a Tesla is the horribly, you know, built uh, interior quality of the car. Um, yeah. And so the thing is, the Chinese don't have that. They've got all the bells and whistles that a Tesla does, which, you know, which means that you've got a smartphone, you know, like computerized car, um, except they've got, you know, nice interiors, um, good quality build. Uh, they don't break down as much. And, um, and if you want, if you need to get it serviced, you'll, you'll get it serviced right away. So um, I think, uh, I think the biggest threat to China, I mean, to Tesla is, uh, is, is the Chinese EV market. And I think that, Given the fact that Tesla in 2021 generated um, over 70% of their profits in China, um, this is actually another sort of 
bare thesis of why Tesla will at some point implode. Makes sense. Very insightful. And so you mentioned, uh, you know, all the significant subsidies that are occurring in the Chinese market. Um, and, and I also re- recently read an article, I think in Q1, that said Chinese individuals are making four to five reservations and, and are really just accepting whichever EV comes first. And so I'm wondering, within the dynamics of, of the Chinese market, do you think this bodes better for BYD and its established scale as there doesn't seem to yet be that type of brand loyalty um, with these startups while the subsidies remain in the market? Well, so, I mean, BYD is is knocking it out of the park. Um, I, I wish they weren't, you know, <laughs> as highly valued as they are because that that's that's one car stock that I would buy in the in the current situation despite the you know, onset of potential recession and whatnot. But um, but BYD is definitely knocking it out of the park. They make their own chips. They make their own batteries. I mean, it's just, you know, it's everything Tesla would want to be um, and yeah. can't. So I think BYD is doing very well. Um, I think they will continue to do well. They're actually going to start exporting their um, new sedan model, which goes against the Model 3. It's called the SEAL. Um, okay. That's uh, that's coming out in the states um, next year, and uh, this is a really bold move by BYD. And the reason why is that um, Trump uh, put up a twenty-seven point five percent import tariff on any Japanese car. Uh, sorry, any Chinese or cars or car components import imported to the United States. So this is what's great is that these guys are so confident and so ambitious to try to make it, even though they'll probably lose money by exporting to the U.S. given those 27.5% tariffs, they're still going to give it a go. And what they're trying to do, which is really respectable, is they're trying to sort of follow in the footsteps of the uh, Korean car makers, you know, Hyundai and Kia. I mean, if you think about Hyundai and Kia 20 years ago, um, the brand value was laughable. But um, look at them now. I mean, they're, they're, you know they're ranked higher than than the Japanese. I think in in, in the the most recent surveys. Right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Chris. Really appreciate it. It's very insightful, and uh, we have a, a lot for investors to to take in and, and to keep in mind as the uh, year moves on. Jim, thanks so much for having me on. And 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 by the way, um, every question you had was, I mean, I think spot on. And and I'm glad I at least knew the answers to 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 the to the questions you had. I really appreciate it. Oh, I mean, I don't think this conversation could have been any more insightful. I've learned so much. Really appreciate the info. Great stuff, Jim. Thanks so much. Thanks. Take care. Have a great one.